May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Failure is not an option. That's the tagline of the movie Apollo 13, which came out 24 years ago, if you can believe it. And the line happens in a great scene in the movie. It's that movie about the lunar mission that almost ended in disaster. And there's a scene where the guys at Mission Control are trying to figure out how to get the astronauts and their crippled spacecraft back to Earth. And one of the scientists has determined that the spaceship is actually losing power far more quickly than they thought. And he's discovered that basically the astronauts are going to have to power down basically the entire spacecraft, including the navigational computer, if they're going to have a chance to have enough power to get back to Earth. And the guys at Mission Control have to figure out how to do that, how to help the pilots or the astronauts pilot the spacecraft with basically no power. And that's when Gene Kranz, who's the head of Mission Control, who is played by Ed Harris, he says to them, we have never lost an American in space. We're sure as heck not gonna lose one on my watch. Failure is not an option. Failure is not an option. It's a catchy saying, right? Sounds inspiring which is why if you go on Etsy, you will find that it has made its way onto motivational posters and mugs and t-shirts and pretty much anything that you can print on. Like if we just tell ourselves often enough that we can't fail, then maybe we won't. But there's a problem with that, which is that it's not true. Not only is failure an option, it's inevitable. None of us will ever be capable of not failing. But that reality, the fact that failure is inevitable, it doesn't seem to keep us from fearing failure. And fearing failure can keep us paralyzed. It can make us unwilling or unable to take risks and try new things. It is really easy to live afraid of failure. But that's not how God wants us to live. God wants us to live in freedom, not in fear. And that's what we're thinking about in this sermon series that we're in the midst of called Living Unafraid. We're thinking about some of the different fears that we can get stuck in. Because we're all afraid sometimes. And in certain situations... Fear is appropriate. It's even a helpful response. But getting stuck in fear and living afraid, that's something else entirely. And so in this series, we're considering some of the things that we are afraid of and how God invites us instead to live unafraid and how he enables us to live unafraid. So why do we fear failure? In part, I think we fear fear failure because of what we believe failure means about us. And that can be different for different people. For some of us, 
we interpret failure to mean that there is something wrong or defective with us. For others, failure means that we are a disappointment to ourselves or to other people or to God. Sometimes people think that failure will make them unwanted, that they will be rejected because they've failed. Other people think failure means that they're incompetent. What we believe is at stake for us when we fail can be different for different people. But all of those beliefs about failure have one common conviction underlying them. And that is that our worth and our value as people come from our performance. The belief that basically we are what we do. And so when we fail, when we don't do or we do badly, then our very sense of who we are can be threatened. And this belief that our worth and our identity are found in our performance, this starts really early in our lives. So if you think about when you were a student in school and you get, start getting grades and you start to associate your grades with your worth or your value. So if we can't make what we think is a good grade or our parents think is a good grade, we can start to think that we are not good enough that we don't have the value or the worth that we would have if we did better. And that mentality just continues to grow as we grow and move on through life. It's easy to see it often at work, where our sense of self gets tied up in our job. So if we go to work and we feel like our hard work isn't appreciated, or we are passed over for a promotion, or we don't get the stream of recognition and raises that we think that we deserve, we can start to feel that there's something really wrong with us, with who we are. And I suspect that this whole thing of of mistaking who we are with what we do has a lot to do with the phenomenon of helicopter parenting that we hear so much about Because it's really easy for parents to find their worth in the success of their children. Whether that's determined by the number of instruments their kids play, or trophies they earn, or what colleges they get into. Parents can have a really hard time letting their children fail. Because somehow that means that they themselves have failed too. And even if your working or parenting days are long behind you, the idea that our worth is connected to our performance or our productivity, that is still pervasive. I think it contributes a lot to the epidemic of busyness that plagues our culture, especially in the D.C. area. We seem to live by this unspoken rule that if you're not busy, you're not important. So we find ways to stay busy, and we wear that busyness like a badge of honor. I think it's part of what makes aging difficult. As we are able to do less, some of our sense of who we are can get shaky. After all, who am I if I can't do whatever it is that I've always done? 
The more we buy into the idea that we are what we do, the more our sense of identity and worth are connected to our performance, then the more we're going to fear failure, right? Because in that case, failure, our inability to successfully do something, is a sign that there's also something wrong with who we are. And we see an example of this in our scripture passage this morning, that long passage from Exodus that Ellen read so wonderfully. A lot of us are really familiar with this passage. We know it as Moses and the burning bush, although we didn't read that very beginning part of the passage. So one day Moses is out tending to his flocks. He notices that this bush is on fire. He goes over to it and realizes it's on fire, but it's not actually burning. And he goes over to investigate this. And when he does, he has this incredible encounter with God. And God tells Moses, you know, I have heard the cry of your people. I have heard the cries of the Israelites who are in slavery in Egypt. And God says, I am going to rescue them. I am going to free you all from your oppressors. And I imagine Moses is pretty excited about this, right? I mean, this is, this is good news. Until Moses hears that God intends for him to be the one who brings about this plan. And as soon as Moses hears that, as soon as he knows that God wants him, Moses, to lead the people out of Israel, the excuses start flowing. He says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? This is sort of the adult version of the question that kids ask when they're given a chore to do. Why me? Why am I the one who has to do this? The words are different, but it's the same sentiment. And then when that doesn't work, Moses begins to think about all of the possible ways that God's plan could fail. So Moses says to God, well, if I come to the people of Israel and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say, well, what's his name? What am I supposed to say to him? And then a little later, Moses says, but they're not going to believe me. They're not going to listen to my voice. They'll say, the Lord didn't appear to you. Moses is basically saying, God, what do I do if they say you made all this up? Eventually, Moses gets to the point where he says, God, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor now since you've been speaking to me. I am slow of speech and tone. Sometimes this passage is translated as Moses saying, I've never been a good speaker and I stutter, which is pretty funny or at least ironic when you think about it because Moses has just had this incredibly eloquent conversation with God and he ends it with, I don't speak so good. (laughs) Each time Moses raises a question or a concern, God promises to be with him. He says he will show up in all of the ways that Moses feels inadequate. But every time, Moses just doesn't want to go. And so at the end of it all, Moses just says, oh, Lord, please send somebody else. But God says, nope, you're going. Take your brother Aaron, but you're going. When we read this story, it is easy, I think, for us to have sympathy for Moses. 
I mean, we understand why he would have all of these questions and these concerns, why he would be skeptical about the plan that God lays out. This is a really big and hard job that God is giving to Moses. Which is why I think just below the surface of all of Moses' questions, we can hear him really asking, God, what if I fail? What if this plan of yours doesn't work? I already fled from Egypt once, running for my life. Why should I go back there and risk it all over again? What if I fail? And we know what it's like to feel that way. We know what it's like to worry that we won't be good enough. To worry that we're not capable of completing the task that's been given to us. To be afraid that we will fail. Which is why I think this passage is so important as we think about how we can live unafraid of failure. Because God's responses to Moses' fears and objections point us towards how we can do that, how we can live unafraid of failure. So when Moses says, who am I that I should do this? God responds, but I will be with you. When Moses says, when people ask who sent me, what am I supposed to say? God answers, I am who I am. Say to the people, I am has sent me to you. When Moses says, I don't speak well, God says, well, go. I will be your mouth, and I'll teach you what you should speak. When Moses begs God to send somebody else, God says, isn't there Aaron, your brother? He can speak well. He's on his way to meet you. He will be glad to see you. You talk to him, and he will speak to the people. I will be your mouth and his mouth and will teach you both what to do. How can we live unafraid of failure? Well, God shows us that community is part of the key. God doesn't tell Moses to go and do it all alone. God brings his brother Aaron to him and says, you guys go together. There are very few instances where God calls people to do an all but impossible task alone. And part, I think, of what leads to our fear of failure is that we often think that we're supposed to do on our own things that God never really means for us to do alone. So part of living unafraid of failure is recognizing that we are called to live in community, to be supported by one another, to have our gifts enhance each other's, to go into things together. God calls us to community, and he provides community. And that is part of how we live unafraid. But more than that, even, I think what we see in this passage is that God always asks us to rely not on ourselves, but on him. So with every question that Moses asks, God's answer is basically me. 
Moses says, how am I going to do this? How am I going to do that? What happens if the other thing happens? And God says, me. I'm the one who will do this through you. God always asks us to be willing. He asks us to go. He asks us to do hard things and take risks. But the power and the outcome of the situation both are always in God's hands. So this is how we can begin to do hard things, how we can overcome our fear of failure. It's when we remember that God calls us into the things that he does. He calls us to do them in community, and he calls, them, calls us to do them not by our own power, but by his power. He calls us to depend not on ourselves, but on him. But even when we do those things, even when we answer the call that God gives us, sometimes we will fail. It's actually what I think is really heartening in our gospel passage that we read this morning from Matthew. Here, Jesus is sending his 12 disciples out on their first missionary journey. And he's giving them all kinds of instructions, and he's given them a really big task. He says, go and heal the sick and cast out demons. These are not, you know, ordinary things for these guys to be doing. This is a big job. And he says, and if people don't want to listen to what you say, if they don't want you to stay in their home, just leave. In other words, it's not always going to work. People aren't always going to like what you have to say. Your job as you see it will sometimes fail. Failure is part of life, and we don't have to be afraid of it. We will fail. And what happens when we do? Well, that's where our identity, not in the things that we do or what we achieve, but our identity as God's beloved children becomes so important. So we see this in our passage from Romans. This passage so well known where Paul says, you know, all things will work for good for those who are called by God. And then he goes on and he says, who can bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? In other words, no matter what we do or don't do, no matter how we have failed, who can bring the charge against us that we are failures? Only God. And is God going to do that? No. And Paul goes on, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? What can separate us from the love of Christ? Bad grades or a lost job or a failed marriage or a ruined reputation? Can any of those failures separate us from the love of Christ? No, Paul says, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I think that preposition in is really important. In all these things, in tribulation and distress and persecution and famine and nakedness, in failure of all different kinds, in these things 
We are more than conquerors. Paul doesn't say that we're conquerors over these things. He doesn't say that we will never experience them. He says that in them, even in our failure, we are more than conquerors. Why? Verse 38. For. Why? For. Because I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. As I said last week, The very truest thing about us is that we are God's beloved children. So there is no failure in the world that can separate us from God's love. And why is that? It's because of the cross. The cross where Jesus died, the thing that looks the most like failure to earthly eyes was actually the means of life and redemption. Jesus hung on that cross looking for all the world like the biggest failure anyone had ever seen. But in God's kingdom, that supposed failure was actually the thing that brought life and love and redemption. That failure was actually the greatest victory. What all of this shows us is that at the end of the day, we are not what we do or don't do. We are not what we achieve or don't achieve. We are not what we succeed at or what we fail at. What we are is beloved. And as we become more and more rooted and grounded in that identity, more and more defined by God's love for us, then we can be freed to live unafraid of failure. Maybe at NASA's mission control, or at least Hollywood's version of it, failure is not an option. But in the real world... Failure is not only an option, it's a certainty. But we can live unafraid even in the face of that certainty because nothing can separate us from God's love. Thanks be to God. Amen.